Welcome to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So Liz, happy yeah. Thanksgiving, the day after when we're recording. Oh, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you too, gobble gobble. We both already told our sort of Thanksgiving dinner tales of woe from Thursday, which is why we're both making um, Thanksgiving Turkeys dinner. today. <laughs> we're making a real dinner. Redo, redo. We're not going out. Always a mistake. Always a mistake. Um, so I think, too, we are going to bypass our 80s trivia because we have an important and special guest and we want to dedicate uh, as much time as we possibly can to him to tell what's going on with him, what has been going on with him, and uh, ask some questions so our listeners can get up to speed. So joining us today is Dr. John Eastman. Um, so John, why don't you just tell everyone who you were before <laughs> the 2020 election, and then we can kind of get into what has happened since then. Sure, I was a constitutional law scholar, a law professor, a former law school dean, and uh, former Supreme Court clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas, and a very active Supreme Court litigator, uh, having been involved in over 200 major constitutional cases up there over the last 20 years. So obviously your credentials, no one can dispute your expertise and and experience, especially what you just said about going before the Supreme Court. Um, so you got involved with the 2020 election, um, obviously, and beforehand, people were very concerned with the early voting that was happening, ballot harvesting, et cetera. So our side was very concerned about the likelihood that the election would be rigged and stolen, a view that the overwhelming majority of Republicans still to this day hold, despite trying to criminalize that that thought crime. So, John, how um, did you get involved then with the Trump campaign or his attorneys before and then especially after the election, what you did? And then we can kind of get into the lead up to uh, January 6th. Sure. So um, the president became aware of me because of my work on birthright citizenship. Um, uh, you may recall in 2015 when he had his famous decline, declension from the elevator escalator in Trump Tower in New York and announced his presidency that one of his planks was um, to get rid of birthright citizenship. And the left and the media you know, kind of scoffed at him for not understanding the Constitution. And at his next press conference, he came back and said, this is a serious scholarly argument that birthright citizenship is not mandated by the 14th Amendment. And the law review article he was waving for that point was mine. Fast forward a couple of years later, and I did an hour long show with Mark Levin <clears throat> criticizing the appointment of a special prosecutor, the Mueller Russia hoax uh, prosecutor, said that was not authorized under federal law and Department of Justice regulations. The president was impressed by that and invited me up to the White House just to have a chat and meet. That was August of 2019. Fast forward a year and uh, in August of 2020, the president asked a good friend of mine, Cleta Mitchell, to form an informal uh, election integrity group to start preparing for potential legal challenges if they became necessary. And Cleta asked me to be part of that in early September. That was about the last um, connection I had until the weekend after the election, I happened to be in Philadelphia uh, for an academic conference that weekend. And um, one of the people involved with the Trump legal team knew I was there and asked me to come over <clears throat> to meet with the, the legal team. 
the one of the big law law firms that had been involved in the cases had just withdrawn and uh, they wanted to uh, get my input because of my Supreme Court and constitutional expertise. So I came over and met briefly with the legal team, very briefly, but long enough to catch COVID. <laughs> and then I was down for the count for about three weeks. Uh, came back at the end of November <clears throat> and the president called me and asked me to inter- get involved on his behalf in a potential original action before the Supreme Court. That eventually became the Texas versus Pennsylvania action, and then uh, it was filed on December 7th, and two days later, I filed a motion to intervene on behalf of President Trump. Um, And then, of course, the Supreme Court ducked it uh, two days later by claiming that Texas didn't have any standing uh, to bring the case and dismissed it. Uh, I, I was then asked to lead the team and filing cert petitions from three different cases in Pennsylvania, which we did, I think, on December 21st, <clears throat> and was heavily involved in the two different cert petitions that were filed up out of Wisconsin, one from the Wisconsin state courts and the other from the uh, the federal courts, uh, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. <clears throat> and we asked for um, emergency relief in all of those or expedited briefing, and the co- court denied all of that and ultimately denied the cert petitions late in February, long after, of course, everything was settled. So the Supreme Court itself was not taking very clearly important and obvious legal constitutional issues that it should have taken. At that point, we started looking at at ways to to have the merits of these many challenges heard because most of the courts that looked at the cases were dismissing them on technical jurisdictional grounds. Um, we made can you, John, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I think, um, you know, the common belief, which is not true, is that so many of these election cases and lawsuits were fully vetted in court by judges and by juries. And, you know, I sat in a courtroom a few weeks ago and heard Judge Chris Cooper say that, you know, 60 courts had heard lawsuits about election fraud and none of them found any, which of course is not true. So can you speak a little bit to the dead ends that Team Trump and the Republican Party and of course then Ken Paxton and that lawsuit, just every dead end that they faced with courts and especially the Supreme Court, which refused to hear the the Texas lawsuit. Um, just just talk a, a bit about that before we get to the um, your memos and, and where that went, because a lot of people were very frustrated that they were they were getting no relief uh, at the uh, judicial level. Well, and I and I will say this: some of the cases that were brought were not by the proper parties. I mean, there's you know federal federal courts under Article Three of the Constitution are courts of limited jurisdiction. They can only they can only consider cases and controversies um, that raise federal constitutional questions or federal statutory questions, or if the people are of different states, they can bring in in diversity of citizenship. But in order to meet that requirement, you have to have a particularized injury. You can't just bring a suit as a citizen saying, I don't like what I'm seeing here. If you don't have a particularized harm, there's a a risk that you won't actually be advocating for, for the position. And the courts have long held that people that don't have particularized injuries don't have standing to bring these suits. They're essentially, um, uh, in, you know, non-interested parties who don't like what they're seeing, but they don't have any real direct or in- injury themselves. There's not a case or controversy as far as they're concerned. 
and so some of the cases just bought by st citizens who saw things that were amiss and wanted to do something about it, those were properly dismissed. But other cases, up in, in Pennsylvania, for example, one of the major cases was brought by the Trump campaign itself, clearly had standing, clearly had a particularized injury. But one of the claims that they were making was that state election laws were ignored by non-legislative actors, and that violated Article 2 of the federal constitution, which assigns exclusive authority to the state legislatures to direct the manner of choosing presidential electors. Well, and that's the basis of the Texas lawsuit as well, right, that, in those that, four states. That's right. That was the basis of the Texas lawsuit as well. Um, and I'll talk about both of those. So up in Pennsylvania, Trump was held not to have standing. He clearly had a particularized injury, but the court there said that the only entity that could challenge the violation of Article 2 was the legislature itself. Now, that's a bit odd in Pennsylvania because there wasn't a legislature at the time. You, you, Pennsylvania's constitution is a bit odd. There's not a, a, a recess waiting for the next legislature to be sworn in. The, the one legislature uh, went out of existence on November 30th and the new one doesn't begin until January. So there really, there really wasn't even a legislature that could bring the suit. Uh, anyway, that was the only case in my knowledge ever in our history that it said a candidate didn't have standing to challenge illegality in the conduct of the election. <clears throat> so that's, that's one thing. Another case was the Texas versus Pennsylvania case. And I, and I will say this, I've, I've said this publicly before, I expressed some skepticism on the front end on whether Texas would have standing to challenge the fact that Pennsylvania's legislature wasn't doing anything about the illegality that occurred in Pennsylvania or Georgia or Wisconsin or Michigan, the other states in that case. But there's an old 1980 case called Anderson versus Calabresi. John Anderson ran as the third party candidate against Reagan that year and uh, Jimmy Carter and um, Ohio wouldn't put him on the ballot as a third party candidate and he sued to get on the ballot. And one of the plaintiffs in that suit was a New Jersey voter and the Supreme Court recognized it's because this was a national election that New Jersey voter had standing to challenge uh, Ohio's ballot access laws because uh, otherwise his ability to to elect the candidate of his choice by voting for him in Jersey might become meaningless if, if the guy couldn't get on the ballot elsewhere. And so I thought that was very compelling argument on why Texas on behalf of its citizens had standing to bring this suit. The Supreme Court clearly didn't want to take these cases. And so in a one line opinion said that we don't think they have standing and dismissed it. Other, <laughs> other, other examples of this are even, even more ridiculous in my view. <clears throat> Sometimes- uh, Oh, yeah, go oh, ahead. Sorry. Well, I, I'm just wondering who else other than the Supreme Court would mitigate disputes between the states? Right. I mean, that, legally, I'm not a lawyer, but I would think that that is the place where these things are settled. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. And this was the basis for the, the dissenting opinion um, by Justices Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch, um, uh, who said, look, we don't have a choice here. The Constitution mandates that we have original jurisdiction in matters between states. We have to take it whether we agree with the merits or not. We have to take the case and resolve it. Um, I thought that was right. And Article 3 of the Constitution specifically gives the court original jurisdiction over disputes between states as a recognition of the separate sovereignty of the states and the dignity that those sovereigns are owed. But the court, the court punted on it.
Um, and they printed on a few lawsuits. So it was the Texas, I believe that there were two lawsuits, maybe one from the Pennsylvania GOP a state senator, a couple state senators, perhaps, and then at least one from Wisconsin. I think there were a few that they refused to. And maybe that's what you're talking about when Gorsuch and Thomas finally said something along the lines, if we don't do this now, when will we do it? Right. Yeah, that was so. There were there were several cases, um, three of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decisions that basically gutted Pennsylvania election law. Um, I took to the Supreme Court in a in an important case, Trump versus Bookvar. We filed in um, about December 20th, 21st, something like that. Um, but th there was, of course, the case that had been pending since October about the change in the deadline for the return of absentee ballots and the ability for ballots that were voted after Election Day to be counted anyway if if the postmark was not legible they were to presume them were valid <clears throat> um uh there was there was a challenge brought by representative kelly if i recall um that the whole opening up of uh of direct mail balloting no excuse mail mail in balloting they called it was a violation of the pennsylvania constitution um that was up there um and then there were two from wisconsin um, one from the state Supreme Court that refused to hear the cases there over strenuous objections by the dissent and a case out of the Seventh Circuit. I want to focus on the Seventh Circuit case for a moment. That's the that's the federal court of appeals based in Chicago, but it covers Wisconsin. <clears throat> and uh, it, it's an extremely important case because one of the things that the, those of us that were fighting these issues and said, look, th these elections were conducted illegally. That means the legislatures have to step in and address the illegality and try and determine who would have won the election but for the illegality. Well, the Seventh Circuit confronted a, an argument that President Trump, President Trump didn't have standing because there was no remedy that the court could provide. You have to be able to you have to have not only particularized injury, but the people you're suing have to cause the injury and you and the court has to be able to remedy your injury. So those are the three aspects of standing, federal standing doctrine. And the court held uh, if Trump prevailed on the merits, there was a remedy available, and that was to send the issue to the legislature to determine what to do about it. Um, to my knowledge, that's the only court in our history that's ever addressed this issue of legislative authority. And it sided with my position on this, that the legislature had ultimate authority here. <clears throat> Very important. And then it went on to say, yeah, but you can't wait till your guy loses and bring the challenge. You should have brought this before the election. Um, uh, your case dismissed on a doctrine called latches or waiting too long. Now, what's odd about that is when they did bring cases before the election, Say a secretary of state issued an illegal guidance and they said, you know, they file suit to say you can't do that. There were courts that said you can't. This is not right. We don't know whether they're going to follow the illegal guidance on Election Day. And so until they actually violate the law, your case is not ripe and it's dismissed. And then when they did violate the law and an elect and a challenge was brought immediately after the election, they said you can't wait till your guy loses and bring these suits case dismissed because you waited too long. Right. So, in other words, the courts across the country were doing everything they could to avoid looking at the merits of the election illegality. And I, I'm not even getting to the question of fraud now. I'm just talking about outright illegality. The statute says, for example, um, if you're going to go collect ballots at nursing homes in Wisconsin, you got to have a bipartisan team of appointed appointed officials to be in there to make sure there's no undue influence or other other malfeasance. 
the Secretary of State prohibited the bipartisan teams from going into the nursing homes. You know, the fish tank cleaner could still go in. Uh, apparently, we weren't worried about COVID with him, but we couldn't send the bipartisan teams of election officials in. And as Justice Gableman, the Wisconsin, former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice, determined after his investigation, that illegality opened the door for a massive amount of fraud. Uh, voter turnout rates went from a historic average of 20 to 30 percent in nursing homes to nearly 100 percent. And many of the, and that includes in memory care wings. And many of the ballots were uh, completed in the same handwriting. So the illegality clearly opened the door for fraud and people walked through that door in a big way, much bigger than was the 20,000 vote margin in Wisconsin. We saw that kind of stuff. Uh, happen all over the place. Uh, and But the courts refused at the time to take it. A lot of courts subsequently have said, well, that was illegal. They say the drop boxes in Wisconsin were illegal. Um, you know, they, 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 they uh, well, we, we just learned last week, the, the, the machines in Georgia were illegal. Um, the, uh, in, in, in Pennsylvania, uh, in my bar trial, they said, what evidence do you have that the the elected official election officials were colluding with the democrat party and i said i said well on the night before the election law in pennsylvania is very clear when you get mail-in ballots you're supposed to put them away under lock and seal until 7 a.m on election day and then you can start pre-canvassing them that means looking at the outer envelope to see if it's properly filled out and signed checking the signature checking the date that sort of thing but there's a very clear law said the results, no, no portion of the results of the pre-canvas can be released or disclosed until the close of polls on election day. Well, on Monday evening before the election, the deputy secretary of state in Pennsylvania sent an email around to all the county election officials saying, we're going to give you the information about whose ballots have been rejected in that pre-canvas. Um, we're going to give it to you and we're going to give it to the political parties as well so that they can get their voters to go out and cure the, the mistakes. Um, and, and, and that was illegal. But what was interesting to me, most interesting to me, was that three days earlier, the Democrat Party leaders in Philadelphia and elsewhere in the state were advertising on their websites or their, or their Facebook pages or their Twitter accounts for workers to help with the ballot curing effort that would come as a result of that illegal advice that was given on the night before the election. So they were given advance warning this illegality was going to occur, and they were, and they were um, hiring people to take advantage of it. <laughs> Uh, for entire organizations, I think the ACLU or it was some organization, to your point, were recruiting people to cure, and that means fix anything that was wrong. If it was dated, you had the wrong address, you didn't sign it twice, you didn't have a witness like I think you needed in Wisconsin. Like anything that was wrong, they had this full out army. Oh, yes. oh yeah, I remember that. They had people yes. out going to addresses, like look, going to find people to have them cure their ballots. So, John, I kind of have a related question, which is if the courts refuse to get involved, even with these recent findings, like in Wisconsin and in Georgia, what's to stop this from happening again? I mean, you would think that a court decision, one way or the other, decisively would have stopped this illegal, these illegal actions. But since we don't have that, it, it leaves the door open for something like this to happen again in 2024. 
This this was the point of Justice Thomas and Justice Alito's dissent and Justice uh, Gorsuch as well's dissent. I'm in, in good fe- company in fe- then. <laughs> in, in February, when when they um, when they re- rejected all of these cases, and in in one of the one of the major cases that was up there, they said, "Look, um, you know, this is this is a huge constitutional issue. We've already said Im- implied that what was going on here was illegal." But we need to say so definitively or it's going to happen again. And the fact that the, the case is over now doesn't mean we shouldn't take it. In fact, it's precisely because it's over that we should take it. So because it won't have any impact on the last election, but it'll have a huge impact on, on clarifying what the rules are going forward. And if you don't have people playing by the rules and you don't even know what the rules are, the fact that you're in, inviting fraud and illegality that's going to be outcome determinative is a real threat to the stability of our system. And that's why those justices said we need to take these cases. But they were overruled by their colleagues. And that's sort of, and I want to get to this too, sort of what Judge Totenberg said now in the lawsuit in Georgia, which was pretty stunning. And let's talk about it after we get through January 6th how this is going to impact, especially Jack Smith's January 6th trial against Trump, because it undermines a huge piece of his indictment, which is that Trump was making these false claims about voting fraud, especially voting machines in Georgia. Well, now you have this judge, this lawsuit that's, I think, was filed in 2017. And she filed this huge 135-page something order, and she's a Democrat. Her sister's Nina Totenberg from NPR, by the way. And she says the same thing that Alito and Thomas said, which is this is a fundamental right. It doesn't matter what side you're on or whose candidate won or lost. We don't have trust in our voting apparatus and especially these voting machines, which she said were vulnerable to outside influence and hacking. So that that bench trial is going to start on January 9th. And I just like your thoughts about that, kind of what Liz was saying, you know, if these courts won't take it up and she actually looks like one of the more, she is the more most courageous one because she's taking it up at the worst time for DOJ right before the 2024 election. Um, th- that was pretty mind blowing. Well, it, it, it was. But but she issued a, a similar opinion back in October of 2020. Uh, so so this lawsuit was brought challenging the last uh, version of the machines down in Georgia, and she issued a ruling saying those were those were not valid. She issued that in August of 2019. That's that's what led to the purchase of the new machines. And in October of 2020, she said those machines suffer from the same security risks. And she had some of the leading experts in the world participating in that case as experts um, that were telling her that uh, people that were, you know, key key um, uh, players in the documentary Kill Chain that was done five, six, seven years ago now. I forget when that had all the leading Democrats, Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren and all these folks complaining about the security risks of the machines. Well, Alex Halderman is one of the leading experts in the world on this. Um, and Harry Hursty, and they were both witnesses. Uh, Halderman's expert report so detailed that the judge ordered it kept under seal, and it stayed there for two and a half years because the level of detail might actually allow people to understand how to hack into the systems. Uh, that was finally released in June of 20. Fact, and yet it it points to what we were saying all along. These machines are vulnerable. Bad actors can take advantage of them. What we learned in the Antrim County audit, both by 
the plaintiff's experts, but also by Alex Halderman, who was retained by the government to be the counter expert, that these machines are vulnerable. And, and in that case, what we learned is that the logs that would allow you to determine whether in fact the security breaches or the security vulnerabilities had been taken advantage of, those logs had been deleted. So you couldn't prove after the fact whether in fact a hack had occurred or not. These are the kind of things we were seeing all over the place. <clears throat> uh, and in Georgia, there was, there was a short a period of time when a judge in the um, Favorito versus Raffensperger case allowed for a forensic audit of one of the machines in Fulton County. And during that one week before he withdrew his order, uh, they discovered that there were uh, thousands of ballots that had been um, inside the system uh, replicated and counted multiple times. Uh, and I, I, I can go into the detail of how they were able to prove that, but it's stunning. Uh, then you get out of Mesa County, Colorado, the t the law clerk, uh, I'm sorry, the county clerk there, um, they were going to update her software, which would have destroyed election records in violation of federal law, a federal law that's a felony that imposed on the election officials if they don't keep those records. So she made a, a, a mirror image copy of the records before the software update occurred and destroyed everything. And then while she had that mirror image copy, she gave it to a forensic analyst who actually went into the computer code and identified uh, computer code that was switching votes. Um, uh, this guy's name is Jeff O'Donnell that did this analysis. And, and uh, you know, the, you search Jeff O'Donnell and, and uh, uh, election machines and you can find his reports. Um, that county clerk, though, is named Tina Peters. And for that effort, to expose what was going on, she's got nine felony counts that are being prosecuted against her for illegally illegally looking at the machine software, even though <laughs> this is this is the kind of thing we're dealing with. Um, but that's that's what we know. And that's why this this decision by Judge Totenberg is so important last week. Um, there are huge problems. People have known about these problems for a decade or more. Um, and. Uh, <clears throat> Well, another another example, um, uh, one of the witnesses, uh, one of the people down in Georgia uh, has stated that there was a the, the when they were doing the recount. The machines kept producing a different number every time there was clearly a problem and the contractor walked out of the room on his cell phone, called somebody back at headquarters and they were able to fix the problem remotely. <laughs> and yet that's not possible oh. if the machines are not connected <laughs> to the Internet. Uh, right. So they're clearly connected to the Internet. Another example of this, when they did the forensic audit in Antrim County, Michigan, they discovered a Wi-Fi chip on the computer motherboard in the machine. And if I recall correctly, the attorney general of the state threatened to prosecute the, uh, the, the plaintiff's legal team uh, for planting evidence. Luckily, they had already obtained in discovery the paper document of the purchase order that had line item, the Wi-Fi chip on the item when they ordered the machine. <laughs> so these are the kind of things that lead people to be rather suspicious and to and to provide the numbers of people that don't are, are convinced that the election wasn't on the up and up. Um, and it's not just Republicans, it's independents and a significant number of Democrats that think that we have real problems with our elections as well. And. So leading up to, and some of this I, I didn't even know about, I was covering the Texas lawsuit and, and what was happening, especially in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, where there's so such flagrant violation 
of state law related to how their elections were handled. Um, but then, so leading up to January 6th, what was going to happen that day, which the Democrats, the Biden regime, a lot of Republicans did not want, is basically 12 hours of public vetting of even the things we didn't know about now, but back then, certainly that had been documented in these six states. They were going to take two hours per state and and oppose um, or contest the results of the, the Electoral College vote. And of course, that shut down because of the quote unquote insurrection. But this, so this kind of leads us up to the point of total frustration, dead ends everywhere in the court. Uh, you know, people are getting on board. We have to certify Joe Biden, et cetera. And so you're sort of brought in then and you investigate or look into constitutionally what someone like Mike Pence or what could be done under the Electoral Count Act. Um, so bring us up to that point then, like December 2020. Yep. So um, and, and uh, I think a little background is is important here because until 2000, nobody had really looked at this stuff for over 100 years. I was called in by the Florida legislature in 2000 as an expert on what the legislature's authority was. What was happening there, you'll recall, was the state Supreme Court was altering election rules, <laughs> ordering partial recounts in heavily Democrat areas, figuring that um, that would increase the Democrat turnout. Uh, by by counting undervotes that weren't being counted elsewhere, and um, and so the legislature said, look, if they do this, um, it, what what can we do? I said, well, if they're changing your rules, Article Two of the Federal Constitution gives you the plenary power to direct the manner of choosing presidential electors. When anybody else changes those rules, then that's unconstitutional, and you and the power resolves back to you to decide what to do about it. You could hold a new election. You could just pick the electors yourself. You could try and extrapolate and determine who would have won the election, but for the illegality that is being imposed on you. But this power vests exclusively with you. And they, they not only heard that from me during the hearing, they hired me to help them draft a statute that would appoint electors if the state Supreme Court did what they was threatening to do. Now that all came to an end um, when the Supreme, Supreme Court of the United States issued its decision in Bush versus Gore, and then Al Gore um, conceded. Um, but the, but those issues then were the first time that we'd looked at this stuff in over 100 years. There was a whole lot of scholarship after that about various aspects of, of the case and the and the authority. Here's what here's what comes to be very clear though. In our federal constitutional convention in 1787. They hit upon the idea of the Electoral College very late in the day, late August, early September. Remember, the Constitutional Convention began in May and went all the way to September 17th. And it wasn't until those last couple of weeks that they finally resolved how they were going to choose the president. Up until then, it had always been presumed it was going to be somewhat of a parliamentary system with the legislature choosing the chief executive. And they finally realized that would destroy all of the effort we've put into creating separation of powers so that no branch of government can become too powerful, that they serve as a check on each other. And if you let the legislature pick the president, you've completely destroyed separation of powers because the president will owe his job both initially and repeat if he wants it again to the legislature. 
So they came up with this idea of the Electoral College to have the state legislatures determine the manner for choosing presidential electors. They would then meet and then the votes would get into Congress to be counted. And the language is very clear. It's the president of the Senate, uh, that's the vice president of the United States, uh, who shall open all the certificates in the presence of the Senate and the House of Representatives, and then they shall be counted. Now, here's where the confusion comes. And this is, you know, I mean, we've been debating this for 200 years now in our in our nation's history. Uh, it shifts from the active voice, the vice president opens, and then it shifts to the passive voice, and then they shall be counted. And that's created a lot of uncertainty about who does the counting. And most importantly, if there's a dispute, who has the authority to resolve the dispute? Uh, and the, most of the scholarship that has been done on this argues that the vice president has that authority to resolve disputes. Some of the scholarship says it's too ambiguous and it doesn't make any sense to let one person have that much power. So it must be in Congress instead, even though the text of the of the of the of Constitution says they're only to be present. They're to observe. They're to make sure that there's a public watch of what goes on, but they're not to have any role. Anyway, I think the more compelling argument is that the vice president has the dispute resolution. And to the naysayers like Mike Pence, who say our founders would never have given such authority to a single person, they're just simply wrong. The debates that we have in the Federal Constitutional Convention about a single unitary executive, the president, having all that authority is because they wanted one person to have the ultimate decision making because that meant that there was accountability. If you give decision making power to a collective body, who do you blame when they make the wrong mistake? <laughs> you know, who, which of the 100 members of the Senate do you blame uh, for casting the deciding vote if it's 51 to 49? Well, because they all can share the blame and, and diffuse the blame. So they actually they actually did have lengthy discussions about the importance of critical decision making being in a single hand, not with respect to the Electoral College, but, but with respect to the executive more broadly. So it's not as odd as to us it might seem at first appear. So then the question is, what basis would the vice president have? And he had letters from more than 100 state legislators in these swing states saying our election was conducted so illegally so contrary to the manner we had set out under our constitutional authority to do so, that these elections should not have been certified. We have been blocked by our governors not calling us into special session to deal with this in any formal way. Please give us a week or 10 days now that we're back in formal session to, to conclude our investigations and to make our best judgment about what ought to be done uh, about this illegality. And if we fact find that the illegality didn't affect the outcome of the election, we will let you know and Biden will be properly certified and he will have a greater moral authority of having won in the election than he's going to have if we leave these things unchecked, unaddressed and unresolved. But the vice president is to do that. That seems like the kind of thing where since there are so many differing opinions, it would be important to make a decision one way or the other. So it really was terrible of Pence to just kind of punt, I guess, or I think he was afraid or he didn't want to be the point of controversy. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, Why you know, made that decision. I, I, I will say this, you know, in a memo that his chief uh, general counsel wrote to him on December 8th, 
the general counsel acknowledged that this was an open question uh, that many scholars had argued that he had the authority to resolve disputes because he was the only one that had any active role in the counting uh, of, of electoral votes. Um, and then he goes on in the memo say, but assuming you don't want to exercise your constitutional prerogative here, here's how things will play out under the Electoral Count Act which most scholars think is unconstitutional precisely because it usurps power that the constitution assigns to the vice president. So he had a legal opinion from his general counsel saying these issues uh, suggest that the vice president has its authority. He just didn't want to exercise it. And uh, then- I, I like to say, you know, when he was running for president, it was an odd pitch to be the leader of the free world by saying I had an opportunity to resolve an important dispute and I decided to be a potted plant instead. And I want to get into a little bit about your um, interactions with Pence's team and general counsel. You're referring to Greg Jacob. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. So you were in correspondence with Greg Jacob and then Mike Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short. Um, And there seems to be some dispute as to how those meetings went, how your email exchanges went. You met with the president, I believe, on January 4th, and I think Pence and Jacob or Pence and Short were there. Um, So first, before we get into the differing timelines, and Mike Pence actually is a different timeline than Greg Jacob and Mark Short do for January 6th, which is very strange. Did you get the sense, so you're saying that Greg Jacob then prepared a memo that that underscored what you were saying, confirmed that you were saying, and said, yes, we believe that you do have this authority. Well, he he, he did that memo on December 8th, and he, he outlined that there was significant scholarship that supported that claim of authority. He then went on and said, um, assuming that you're not going to exercise that prerogative, in other words, exercise that authority, here's how things play out under the Electoral Count Act. And from that point forward, I think Vice President Pence was convinced he had no authority that he would, even if he had it, he wasn't going to exercise it, but he didn't think he had authority and they operated from that point forward. They never told us that, by the way, and Pence kept his view on this very close to the vest. You'll recall in December and even in early January, he's out there arguing and it's going to come to me before the court and we're going to do everything we can about it. He was he was leading people on to believe that he was going to exercise authority that many folks around the country were saying he had. And he had but it was clear now that we've learned in hindsight, it was clear that they'd made the decision long before that they were not going to do anything. Now, they did not reveal their hand in public. They did not reveal their hand in private meetings to the president or to me. Uh, In the meeting on January 4th in the Oval Office, it was the president, the vice president, me, and then Mark Short, his chief of staff, and Greg Jacob, his general counsel. And all they did was ask lots of questions, but they did not reveal their hand. And my, my read on that is Pence knew had already determined he was going to break with Trump over this, and he did not want to do it in person, and he wanted to forestall the, the, the decision and the, and the rupture and the blow up as long as he could. So at the end of that meeting, when, when we're talking about delaying things at the request of these state legislators, he says they would take it under advisement and continue to discuss it with me the next day. So he did not, he did not, you know, Greg Jacob has said he repeatedly told the president and Eastman in that meeting that he had no such authority. That's just false. He never did. 
and uh, you know, he asked questions. You could, you could, you could read into it that he didn't think he was that he wasn't going to exercise this, but he never came out and said it. Um, and uh, and then Greg Jacob and I spent another couple of hours the next day debating all of the historical precedent and the strength of that precedent and the various scenarios. Um, and uh, at one point, uh, very very highbrow nuanced discussion of constitutional law. So there's a doctrine in constitutional law called non-justiciable political question. And that is some things the constitution doesn't let the courts resolve. Uh, they are assigned for final decision elsewhere. And the best example of this is the impeachment power. The house impeaches somebody, the sole trier of that impeachment, the court, if you will, is the, is the Senate of the United States. And how they conduct themselves is, is entirely up to their discretion under the under the Constitution. There have been cases trying to be brought to say you have to be able to call witnesses. We got to cross examine whatever. And the Supreme Court has said, no, these are non-justiciable political questions because the Constitution assigns the final resolution here to you. Well, my view is that um, the, the Constitution assigns the final resolution of disputes over electoral votes to the vice president. And and uh, he at one point said, you know, again, I was we were we were talking about this in the term of if the vice president um, called a recess of the joint session of Congress so that the state legislatures could look at these and let him know who was actual victor in their states. Uh, Greg Jacobs said, well, he would be immediately sued. And I said, yeah. And all of the the left of center law professors who argued that Bush versus Gore was a non-justiciable political question and they shouldn't have taken it up will have that thrown back in their faces. Uh, and, and Greg Jacob then said, well, you agree with me, don't you, that if he were just to gavel Trump elected in these circumstances, something that you said was foolish uh, if he did that when, when we met in the Oval Office last night, you agree that the court would probably take it and, and rule 9-0. I said, yeah, they would probably find a way around the non-justiciable political question doctrine uh, and rule against him. But then I said, and this is the big headline, Eastman admits that he would lose 9-0 in the Supreme Court. Not true. We were talking about, and you know, if if he did just gavel Trump reelected on January 6th, then they'd find a way to rule 9 against 9-0. But, but that was not my advice. My advice was delay. And I actually, in the email exchange on that, come back at him and said, but I think I have a fair chance of winning if he simply delays at the request of legislatures who are telling him their election laws were violated and the election should not have been certified. I said, I think I have a fair chance of winning that or the court deciding it's non-justiciable and not taking it up. So, you know, this is the way things get distorted through the lens of Liz Cheney and all on the January 6th committee. But that was not that was not, you know, that was not an admission on my part that I would lose on the advice I was actually giving. But, you know, we don't live by fact anymore. We live by false narratives repeated over and over again until they look true because they've been repeated so often. Well, it was pretty apparent too, and I went through both Greg Jacob and Mark Short's um, transcribed interview with the J6 committee and compared it to Mike Pence's book. 
And as I said, there's a big discrepancy in what happened. Mike Pence made it sound like he got up the morning of January 6th. You know, he prayed a gazillion times. He wrote this letter on his own. Well, that certainly wasn't the case. Greg Jacob and Mark Short got to the vice president residence early that day. They already sort of knew what they were going to do. A lot of it was based off of what Judge Luddig had said. Judge Luddig, who you clerked for, um, which uh, and by the way, and, and I'll, you know, one important piece of Judge Luddig's statement here when he he gave a speech down at the University of Georgia Law School some months ago, and he admitted he'd never looked at these issues ever. The first time he even heard there was a dispute about the meaning of the 12th Amendment was when he was sitting in that January 6th select committee hearing and heard Greg Jacob talking about it. He he never had done any of the research and still to this day hasn't done any of the research, but he's convinced I was wrong at every turn. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, that's that's that's, that's, that's a standard now for for, I guess, what goes by by serious scholarship or, or uh, constitutional analysis. So and then I think the really shady part about what Mike Pence did, even though they, according to now Short and Jacob, they knew by the fourth that they weren't gonna pull the trigger on this, but yet they strung everyone along, including the American people, till they didn't even release their memo until right before the joint session of Congress started at one o'clock. So he could have done it at any point that morning, let people know I'm coming forward with this memo. Here's what it's going to say. I'm not going to go along with the recommendations of Dr. Eastman or Dr. President Trump's uh, urging for me to do anything. I'll explain my, but he didn't. I mean, it's like he intentionally waited until the worst time to release that, uh, his memo. Um, well, and, and this came to a head in the Texas, uh, Louis Gohmert, Representative Louis Gohmert filed mm-hmm. a suit against Pence in Texas saying, you know, it was basically seeking a declaratory judgment that the vice president, in fact, had this authority. And and the Department of Justice, uh, as they do on any lawsuit against a, a high official in the government, was representing Pence. And they wanted to put an answer in or a responsive brief in that out, you know, took the position that Pence didn't have this authority. And Pence balked at that because he did not want that out there in front of his letter. He wanted to be, you know, kind of have his letter be a standalone, you know, swan song, you know, message to the country. And he didn't want it tied up, you know, in an answer in a litigation first. So they'd already made that. That was what, December 30th, January 1st, something like that. They'd already made the decision, and yet they continued to go through this charade like it was still an open question in their mind, and they were just exploring what the right answer was. They'd already made up their mind. The letter had already been largely written. Um, they filled in some pieces later after you know, after the meeting on the 4th or my meetings on the 5th. But it, it was already predetermined, despite them telling you, as you point out, in public, in speeches. He went down to Georgia for a big speech on the, on the Senate runoff and said, when this comes to me, we will do something about it. We will do everything we can to get this fixed. Well, that was just a lie. Yeah, he's a he's a real snake. And so it's good to we see. Don't, we don't like him here at Happy Hour. We are not fans of Mike Pence. We're here. unhappy with Mike. Yes. I don't I don't mind having disagreements with people. I mean, that's the nature of politics. What I do mind is that people, one, lie straight, you know, straight out of their face to you and two, distort what you said in order to to, uh, you know, defame you. And, and, And his team on this has done both. He's a weasel and a coward. And I'll die on that hill. Yeah. 
No. And thank you know, and, and I think the American people see it because he couldn't even get it above one percent in the in the polling, despite despite all the the big establishment money trying to get behind him. This is the guy that's gonna save us. They they keep you know, they keep picking these horses that can't seem to get out of the out of the starting gate. Liz Cheney and then and then uh, and then uh, and then Pence and and Christie and I guess I guess Nikki Haley's gonna be the next one. We'll see. But but they, they seem not to understand the disconnect between the, the political expert class who don't know their butts from a hole in the ground and and the rank and file Americans who know more about the Constitution and the limitations on government and the notions of what freedom means and what a free people are willing to do to remain free than any of these jerks in Washington or the New York DC corridor. Well, John, we're, uh, this has gone so fast and we've got about 12 or so mm. minutes and, and, and I, I wanted to get into the disbarment proceedings, but I'd really like to have you come back and talk about that specifically because I think the judge now has it in her, I mean, she's already made some preliminary statements, but I think there's some time before there's a formal ruling on that. Well, she 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 uh, delayed our deadline for filing our closing argument briefs until next Friday, so we'll file our closing arguments briefs on December 31st, I'm sorry, December 1st, and then she'll have up to 90 days to issue a ruling. Um, if she she can't disbar me, but she can recommend disbarment. And as I understand the California bar rules, if she recommends disbarment, my license is immediately suspended while I pursue any appeal. So uh, it's a fairly potentially catastrophic decision that uh, we're looking at. Uh, it's already cost me more than a half a million dollars to defend my my bar license because they made this the front and center case challenging all the election issues. And, you know, they they, they pull out a bunch of, of uh, witnesses who were working for the government who'd say, oh, yeah, everything was fine in our in our election. Uh, and therefore, when Eastman says it wasn't, he must be making false statements. Uh, Bill Barr said everything was fine in the election. There was no evidence from their investigations of enough fraud to affect the outcome. Uh, very important. He doesn't talk about illegality. And he also doesn't point out how limited the investigations that they had done were because he was ordering people not to do investigations. Mm -hmm. So this this is what I call the authoritarian moment in our history. The whole premise here is the government has spoken and you continue to say otherwise, therefore you must be lying rather than our election officials must be lying. And I'll give you one example. You know, the, the, the witness they called from Arizona, um, Bo Dole, used to work with the Perkins Coy law firm in the appellate shop, in the shop doing all the election challenges with Mark Elias. And then she worked, <laughs> then she worked for United uh, States United Democracy Center, which is the group that filed the complaint against me in the California bar. Uh, clearly a hyper-partisan advocate, and she's now giving testimony as if she's some neutral government official. And when we tried to question her about her bias, we were not allowed to question her about that. Uh, you know, another example, they would put in as evidence press releases from the Michigan Secretary of State or the Wisconsin Secretary of State. And the press releases said our election was was perfectly legal and all fair and, and, and what have you. And I said, well, th th that was that was false statement at the time because the courts had already ruled that parts of the election were illegal. And subsequently, the courts have ruled that other parts of the election were conducted illegally. So it's a false statement on its face. And yet it gets in as if it's gospel truth in the in the in the bar proceeding. It, it, it really is. Like I say, it's an authoritarian moment. 
We are look. We are living George Orwell's 1984. When the government says two plus two is five, you better not only repeat it, but believe it or we're going to destroy you. And that's what we are confronting here. And it's why I am working so hard to fight back against it, as I know you are, Julie, too. The work you've been doing has just been eye opening and terrific. Well, thank you, John. And I, I mean, it, I think people are hopefully starting to realize what's happening here after you know, more than three years of putting their head in the sand and pretending this is all going to go away because I think you arguably, they've gone after you as hard as, almost as hard as they've gone after Trump. I mean, they're out to completely destroy you, bankrupt you, destroy your livelihood, your family. This is what not just the Department of Justice, but all of these entities want to do and disbar um, you know, take away the law licenses of attorneys who advise Donald Trump. That's why it was so hard for him to even find attorneys, him to find attorneys to defend him. But certainly the January Sixers, they can't they couldn't find anyone to represent them. Um, no one would touch this. So um, I just think what's been happening to you is is absolutely sickening. It's sadistic. It is totally twisted. The idea that you gave legal as an expert you gave your legal opinion and wrote it down and explained it and had these high level debates with people that somehow now that's criminal behavior. You also are included in um, the, the, in the RICO indictment in Georgia, just so our listeners know that as well. Um, but it also appears that you are an un, unindicted co-conspirator in Jack Smith's four count indictment against Donald Trump. So they're just, how do you, I guess on a personal level, because I talked to a lot of J6ers about this. How do you keep it together and, and your family? Like, how, how do you tolerate this? Because this has broken it and would break even tough people. Well, so a couple of things. One, we set up a legal defense fund a, a long time ago, and it's raised over a half million dollars, which is, you know, le less than a third of what we've already incurred and less than a sixth or seventh of what we're likely to incur before we're done. But it is helpful. It's givesendgo.com slash Eastman. The reason I give that out, not just for people to support with financial resources if they can, but it also is a, is a site that allows people to send prayers. And my wife and I read the prayers and they are heartwarming. Um, some, uh, probably 10 months ago now, my wife and I came to the that my career, my teaching, my deanship, my Supreme Court clerkship, my top law school education, um, my founding PhD in the founding, American founding has equipped me probably better than almost anybody else in the country to fight back against this stuff. And so, you know, when our founders pledged their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honors to create a government of, of a free people with free institutions, they put everything on the line. And we are we are at a crossroads in our country on whether we're going to go back to a tyrannical form of government where we are subjects, not free citizens, or whether we're going to fight like our forefathers fought and our foremothers fought for liberty. And so I happen to have been thrust into a role where I can participate in that fight. And I draw strength from that knowledge and from the people that lend support to us because they recognize how important the fight is. So, yeah, we've got protesters down the, the end of our street every day for a year. Oh, um, we had people bear. We've got a dirt driveway. We had people burying four inch spikes in our driveway that have took out several sets of tires. Um, uh, so we had to spend a lot of money on a, on a massive security system. 
but but as an old professor of mine once said, if you're not catching incoming flack, you're not over the target. And we are directly over the target. And and um, it is a fight worth having because I'm not willing to let my kids and grandkids, um, you know, become enslaved to a tyrannical government. And I happen to be have been thrust forward into a position where I can do something about it. And I'm doing everything I can about it. This is now my full time closing of my career position and effort is to is to push back against these tyrannical tendencies that we're seeing in our government. Well, you are not just incredibly brave, but inspirational. And I know a lot of people are going to hear this and be applauding and be infuriated and crying and 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 want to help no matter how they can your wife has to be amazing too because the strain is overwhelming especially threats have you contacted the fbi or local law enforcement are they aware of these threats against you they are they are i mean they with the spikes and the fees she's thrown at our house the you know unless we catch them on camera there's nothing they can do about it but we you know and we get i get routinely um, nasty phone calls uh, emails, whatever, some cross the line to what I consider to be actual threats rather than just, um, you know, bloviating by trolls. And I've referred those to the FBI and they've taken them seriously to, the, to their credit. Um, the rank and file of the FBI are much more honest and into law enforcement than some of the leadership of the FBI in Washington, D.C. Well, so the, fo- the, the folks in the FBI offices uh, down in, in New Mexico, where we live, and the state police were very supportive when I when I filed those complaints and um, uh, but that th- this is the world in which we live it's unfortunate but but you've got people in power that the American people have woken up and to see what's going on and so they are they are engaging in their last gasp to try and hold on to that power against an, an increasingly vocal alert and intelligent uh, movement to retain and regain uh, the limited government notion that our fathers, our founding fathers bequeathed to us. And, you know, people all over the country waking up and saying, we're not going to allow our school boards to put 50-year-old men naked in our girls' showers. We're not going to let them teach our students that we're the most immoral society in the the human history, when when quite the opposite is true. Uh, And so people are standing up finally. uh, And it takes a little bit of leadership but one of my former students sent me a note and said, you know, uh, we, we've seen the most awesome ex- ex- exhibition of courage here and, you know, and prayed that this kind of courage is contagious, as I believe it is. Well, let's ask Liz, because she's completely blackpilled. And I think <laughs> um, you, you, you actually amazingly give people reason to hope that we might prevail. Liz, what, what do you think? No, I agree. I mean, you you have to go down fighting. I mean, I'm I am I am blackpilled, I'm not gonna lie. Um, and I think our conversation, it's very depressing, just the degree to which uh the people have lost control of the government and that we're just really running in sort of this extra constitutional space now, um, where well, laws aren't followed and people just kind of shrug their shoulders uh, over things like well, so the legislature doesn't decide the laws of the election, even though, you know, that's in the Constitution. It's very explicit. So, I mean, I'm we've got all we can do is fight. You know, all we can do is fight and shine light on it. And I I hope and I pray that some of these things get addressed and fixed before the 2024 election, because I know the GOP is out there and they're 
constantly talking, oh, we're, we're going to do ballot harvesting now. We're going to ballot chase. That's the least of our problems. If we have an entire system that is basically just running extra constitutionally, you know, so that's my that's my thought. But, John, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to we're going to have you back once we find out what about your the, the court decides about your bar or the your whole disbarment mess. Uh, disgusting, really. Um, but we're definitely going to have you back. And thanks, everybody. And we will also add the um, gifts and go. And John, is there any other place? Yeah, where people well, can people find your find work. You. That's yeah. uh, uh, you know that's the best. We we use it also as a blog for post- posting um, good articles that really understand what's going on and help uh, enlighten people. So so that's there as well. In fact, I think Julie, I've got some links to some of your work up there too. Um, and then uh, of course Claremont.org, where the institutional affiliation that I have, Claremont Institute has a bio and a lot of my other writings. Uh, you know, I've I've been involved in property rights or religious liberty or the abortion fights. Um, uh, for my whole legal career. And so a lot of that work is available at claremont.org as well. Now, let me, let me close with this on, uh, anybody that wants to make a donation, if they want to make a large donation, they should contact me directly. Um, and I'll give my email address. Uh, easiest way to do that is J Eastman at claremont.org. And I've, I've got some options for them to consider uh, if they're willing to, because to, I got to raise another million dollars between now and February to, to deal with the Georgia thing. Um, and, and uh, you know, I'm trying very hard not to completely deplete my wife's retirement fund, as it were. So pe- people, if they if they are in a position to help in a big way, they should contact me. Uh, if 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 not a big way, every every donation we get on that Give, Send, Go is heartwarming to us, particularly those accompanied with the prayers. And I would encourage all of your audience to at least take a look at it and do what they can to help. Thanks, John. I will put that in our show notes so that people can see it, your email address and your Give, Send, Go. Um, Julie, do you want to say something before we close it out? John, you're an American hero. You uh, just God bless you and your family. This is going to be very eye opening to a lot of people. I maintain hope that we are going to prevail, that good is going to prevail over evil because we have to. And these are extremely evil people and forces. So uh, you've I think your words of encouragement and in you're inspirational in your fight. And so we will do whatever we can to help you, have you back. We will share the gifts and go and other measures and just, you know, please keep us posted and, and we'll just keep fighting on. Thank you very much. And I hope uh, you and your families had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Remember why we celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, George Washington uh, issued the first proclamation uh, because we owed thanks to our creator for helping us come through the Revolutionary War and to create a government that has become the most prosperous, um, secure and freedom supporting in all of human history. And for that, we give great thanks. And that was uh, one of the many legacies that George Washington left for us. All right, thanks, John. And thanks you guys for listening. Um, If you haven't already subscribe, iTunes Happy Hour with Julian Liz. We are now also on Spotify, where Joe Rogan also is on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Julie, are we going to be here next week? We are going to be here next week. Yes, we're going to have a tough time rivaling this show. I think this will really take off, but we'll try. 
All right. So we'll be here next week. So we will see you soon. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week. Bye.